0: leadership creates culture but when culture is mature culture limits what the organization will accept as leadership
1: welcome to insert human this is a show that is not for everyone it's for seekers people like you hopefully who are searching for solutions to your problems the world's problems and everything in between the conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything and in doing so realize a better life and one day a better world. Greetings everybody, good to be back. Thank you for joining me and us. We are honored to have as our guests today, Ed and Peter Schein. They are both incredibly accomplished human beings, business people. Ed is an academic with background in MIT, University of Chicago, Stanford, Harvard, PhD in social psychology, written a bunch of books. Well, one book in 2009 was called Helping, which I just love that title, and I'm going to read that book. And then he followed that up with three books, Humble Inquiry, Humble Consulting, and he and Peter have just partnered on a book, recently published a book called Humble Leadership. And you have another book coming, is that right, guys?
2: We have another book that just came out a month or so ago called It's a Refresh on the Humble Inquiry book with a lot of new material and new stories. That's great.
1: And Peter is no slouch himself. He's got a big background in in technology, Silicon Valley, executive consulting, working with lots of startups and different kinds of organizations on helping them optimize optimize their organizations. So thank you guys for for being part of this little journey called Insert Human.
0: So our pleasure as
1: I mentioned to you both just a few minutes ago, in my journey, I often get the question, hey, Chris, can you help me fix my company's culture? As if it's something that you can sort of flick a switch on or there's some you know pill you can swallow. And I've often, I've often kind of sort of struggled with answering that question. So I'd love to just ask you, what, in, from your perspective, what exactly does that word mean? And what exactly... Is it or how, in the work that you have done, whether academic or as advisors, have you approached this task of evolving a culture? Ed, Peter, either one.
0: I'll I'll take a crack at that first. I like at the simplest level to compare culture for a group to character and personality for an individual. It's kind of the sum total of what we have collectively learned is the way to solve our problems of survival and our problems of internal integration. Mm -hmm. So any group that has a history will have evolved a bunch of shared behaviors, beliefs that have worked pretty well for them, so they, they take it for granted. Now, we know that there are a zillion different kinds of personalities and characters. In the same way, there are a zillion kinds of group cultures, and I really came to having to write a book about it, the original 1985 Organizational Culture and Leadership, which maybe was my most important book, because I was working simultaneously in New England with Digital Equipment Corporation, a company that had been founded a few years before I got involved. It was changing the technology of computing from big machines to interactive desktop stuff. The same time, and I was trying to understand, you know, what do they have in common that you could call a culture? The same time, on a quarterly basis, I was flying over to Basel, Switzerland, where I had been asked to do some lectures on career dynamics that were being given to the 50 international leaders of the Sibagagi, industrial chemical company. Both of these were highly successful. Both of them wanted my my process sort of help, and yet they were about as different as you could imagine. So what kind of a word would describe two companies in different industries that are equally successful? And the word organizational culture that thereby came into being, They had very different organizational cultures. DEC based on the occupation of electrical engineering and being a young founding company in the U.S. All those components were part of the DEC culture. Siba Geigy, an old aristocratic Basel aristocracy chemical company, product of an early merger with Siba and Geigy a worldwide dispenser of all kinds of chemical products. And their culture was based on Swiss-German culture, chemistry and how chemistry works, internationalism. So I needed the word culture just to describe these two very different companies Mm -hmm. and seeing how they were each legitimate businesses but they were about as different as could be. And we didn't have a vocabulary for that in our field. And if I
1: can interject a quick question, it's just it's what you just shared prompted, prompted a thought, which is how much of a culture is motivated by the present versus the past?
0: Almost ah. completely the past. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Like, I'm not sure people. I mean, I'm not sure I've ever acknowledged that. Well, that's, yeah. that's why I like to compare it to character and personality. Right. It's yeah. the sum total of what you've learned to be in the present. So the present triggers different parts of you. Right. But those parts of you or the parts of the company that will respond to the present are the history of the past responses that have worked. Culture is what has worked. And that's why you can't say, I don't like my culture, I'm going to change it tomorrow. That's like saying, I don't like my character, and I'm going to change that tomorrow. Very well, we'll start with three years of psychoanalysis, and then maybe (laughs) you have to see culture as the stabilizing source of success.
2: Is that um, a, I and yeah, I'd love to um, maybe talk through a little bit about the model that first introduced in that first that Ed first introduced in the in that initial culture book, and then talk about a refinement that we made on it in the third edition of the Corporate Culture Survival Guide, which came out a couple of years ago. And the the Corporate Culture Survival Guide was supposed to be a sort of a business friendly restatement of much of what was in the textbook. But this stuff's complicated. So in either case, the goal of those books is to present some vocabulary so that you don't, maybe you can even talk about stuff without using the word culture. That's one of Ed's uh, important sort of mantras over the years is let's start talking about this and not use the word culture at all because it's, it's too big and yet it's not specific enough. So the specificity comes from the initial model, which we can think of as sort of culture observed, which is artifacts being the things you can see and touch and feel the way people arrange their offices, their buildings, their signage, all of those, those sort of those outward symbols of culture, and then espoused values, which is what people say publicly about who they are and what their company does, and then underneath that are the deep underlying assumptions. And the deep underlying assumptions are the things that have accumulated over time, are the learning, the history. And the reason why we think that's important is if, if we go back to think about some of the great social anthropologists of the second half of the last century, which is where, where our primary influences, one of them is Marshall Solins, who wrote a lot about history. Uh, He was talking about the Hawaiian Islands and and sort of the cultural underpinnings there in the context of the history of Captain Cook and colonialism. And that stuff's actually really interesting, but how it applies to us is that he describes the idea of the structure of culture and the practice of culture. And the structure and the practice are in continuous and reciprocal iteration of each other. And so if that first model was describing artifacts, espoused values, and underlying assumptions, as we would view that as the structure, which is really, as Ed said, that is kind of the history, the living history. Right. And then the practice we describe as having also three levels. One is the macro culture, which is the environment we're all living in. It's the, our place in time. It's zeitgeist. And then the, the second one is the social culture, which is how we interact with each other at work, how we have learned to get the most done because we have patterns of interaction that are important to us. And then the, the underlying that is the technical culture which is you know our reason for our existence our strategy and somewhere between social and technical culture are what we would think of as values and behaviors okay and so the practice of culture being macro social technical the structure of culture being artifacts espoused values and underlying assumptions these are two dimensions of the same thing it's just one is the culture observed the artifacts, et cetera, and the culture practiced, our social culture in the context of macro culture and technical culture. Right. And so it's a complicated model, but it's not very complicated. And, and the, the, the point about it is to break it down in a way that you have some vocabulary to start talking about how you can change culture.
1: Which is to suggest that it's, in, I know this isn't a verb, an inventoriable thing. In other words, you can look at every facet of what you just described. And I mean, this is, a, this is a question: Is it an auditable function that you can you can go in and capture, or codify current behaviors, and capture? You know, <laughs> uh, is, is that a yeah? And, and, you I know, in fact, I mean, your work with Deck and and Siwa Geige, was that part of that assignment to try to capture the current state?
0: Or? Well, let let me comment on that because there's a an interesting parallel that you raised about the inventory of nouns versus the practice, which is mostly verbs. Because again, the analogy to the individual is very important. Should performance appraisal be an inventory of what you're able to do, which is how a lot of companies settle for it, and which I think is nonsense, or should performance appraisal be feedback on your activities and the ones that work best and the ones that work well least right so you're labeled as, as an aggressive person but that doesn't mean anything until someone says you know you were much too active in that last meeting you kept writing you kept talking over other people that difference makes all the difference when you talk about culture are you a market culture or a social culture, which some of the people like to have quick questionnaires and hang an inventory type label? Or does a culture need to be observed in action before we even have a sense of how to label it and how to deal with it? So, for example, one set of labels that we sort of like, is you can talk about active, passive, or constructive behavior. And think of that as a possible typology, which you can measure. Are you, are you mostly, whenever you display yourself, Digital Equipment Corporation was an extremely aggressive, constructive culture. We see lots of companies, Sibagagi wouldn't be one of them, but lots of companies that are passive-aggressive they, they are a blaming culture. They always want root causes. Nothing is ever seen in a positive light. It's always who is hurting us. So the, this idea of label cultures in terms of their activity really makes
2: more sense to me than an inventory of artifacts. But of course, Chris, starting around the time that Ed was writing that first textbook, there were all sorts of different taxonomies and models for how to try to get your hand around this this big thing called culture including in even in the early you know days of describing organizational culture a lot of scholars were trying to make a very clear distinction between organizational culture and climate climate being much more proximate the sort of the feeling of how it how it is at work Mm -hmm. being a little different today than it was yesterday. That's really more in the short term, how we think about how maybe our practice of culture has shifted a little bit. I'll give you an example. When I was at Sun Microsystems, this is probably about 15, 15 plus years ago, there was a bit of a sort of a financial hit to the company. We had a tough quarter. And one of the things that was was an artifact of that culture was that every kitchen in every campus across the globe on Wednesday mornings would have donuts. It was just Scott McNeely believed in donuts for the people. So mm-hmm. we had donuts every Wednesday. Well, at some point we hit, we hit a hard time financially and decided that we weren't going to do that anymore. So all of a sudden, that Wednesday, there's no donuts no in the donut. kitchen. And it, you know, it was a a sacred cattle was being slaughtered, you know, it was a hit to the social culture, but really at the end of the day, that was sort of a twirl of a little dial that impacted climate more than we would really say that it impacted culture. People still convened in in the kitchen. They still, you know, they, they still had their deeply held assumptions about what Sun Microsystems was and how it competed and how people should relate to each other. That was a climate thing. That wasn't really a culture thing in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so again, it's all about a vocabulary. What can we do to start teasing apart this thing that we know because we work at an organization or maybe we've been there for a while? We kind of know implicitly what the deep underlying assumptions are. We kind of know how we're supposed to relate to each other. But what's what's the vocabulary that we can use to describe it so that we can learn, right? There's always lots of surveys that external companies can give you so that they can catalog it. And some are better than others. But what's more important is that people within organizations start having a way of kind of describing their behaviors and describing their values in a vocabulary that gives them maybe some ideas, some levers or some dials to turn in order to change it. Right. Well, well,
0: I, sorry, I just want to add one more footnote because that example really illustrates the connection between the technical culture of how things really have to work and some of the elements of the social culture because the same kind of thing happened in DEC where it was discovered that there was way too much money being spent on kitchens everywhere and a lot of food and so on. And so at one point, they tried to cut back as a cost-saving thing on all the food-related items. And the, the people who objected most strongly were the key engineering groups who, it was realized, thrived on the interaction. Mm-hmm. But the way you get better engineering was you have more communication. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the the food wasn't the problem. The food was the facilitator. So changing behavior can be a very dangerous thing if it actually then violates a deeper assumption, Right. namely, let's cut out the food so that there's less chit chat when it's the chit chat that you really need.
2: yeah
1: you know you you both mentioned the word change and shifting and obviously a lot's changed in the world since the days of, of digital equipment and see a guy back then how do you how do you look at this question of culture and more specifically the question of leadership and management in this environment particularly coming out of covid you know there's a lot of conversation about the demands, the the new culture that is being demanded, the new kinds of environments. How do you both look at that question?
0: Well, let me start with, with one very simple model that never is understood, it seems to me. The reason I put both leadership and organizational culture in the title of the original book is because they are yin and yang, but it's only understandable in the context of of a, the age of a group or an organization. In DEC, the young company, the leader, particularly Ken Olson, and his strong set of values totally determined the culture of DEC because he said, we're not going to lie to our customers. We're going to have teams competing with each other. He had all kinds of if you don't like it, don't work here. You know, He surrounded himself with his value people, and it worked. So pretty soon people said Ken's values must be the right values. So 25 years later, they saw leadership as the kind of person who would stimulate innovation, who would support what we have always done. And they would occasionally bring in someone from the military or from the semiconductor industry who is a much more structured leader. And they said, we don't like him. Get him out of that job. So leadership creates culture. But when culture is mature, culture limits what the organization will accept as leadership. And that's very profound in old companies. They only promote certain kinds of leaders because of the cultures they have. They say we want innovation, but they don't bring in young Turk-type innovative leaders because people say, no, 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 that's not what we want here. Right. We're, we're different. Sibagagi right. could only do this when things shifted technically from industrial chemicals to pharmaceuticals And they could then say, but maybe the pharma managers are the vision of the future. So let's try giving them different jobs, even though it may be very uncomfortable to move them to the higher positions. But that in the end did facilitate the merger with Sandoz and eventually becoming Novartis. But Ed, how about today? So I'm a
1: leader today. How do I think differently about my role, about how to approach trying to move my culture that's been around for 30 years or 50 years? Or like what are what are some of the, I don't know, the mandatories for a 21st century leader in today's kind of wacky world?
0: Well, we've described a bunch of them in our book. And I think the main characteristic of of today's leaders or successful leaders is that they first understand the culture they're in. They don't start with my values are correct and I'm gonna change this company. Right. They're gonna say, I first have to see how my values and this company blend, if they blend at all. And then I have to find in the culture those things which will help me begin to shift toward new values. I can't just announce them and expect anything. But let's say I'm really more team-oriented in a very individualized company. I then look in the company for successful teams and start touting what they do and maybe promoting their managers. I I have to understand the culture and then use it Mm -hmm. if I'm to be a successful leader to begin to shift things for my values, if they are somewhat different from the existing ones.
1: That suggests to me that you oh. need a fair amount of patience. <laughs> you, yeah. you, can't, you can't just issue a, an email saying the new values are X, Y, or Z. You have to first <laughs> assess what the current values actually are.
2: Well, we, well you, one <laughs> of the things that we did in the, uh, in the Corporate Culture Survival Guide, the recent edition, is we provided a sort of generative re- metaphor for change, so that it isn't the you know the linear change model. I mean, those lin- the linear change models, the Cotter eight-step model is probably one of the more famous ones. Those are valid, but again, they don't take into account the sort of the intrinsic inertias that prevent change. They kind of pre- they, they give you a model to think about how you can in a very you know linear and stepwise fashion. Change a dimension of culture, but at the same time, the forces resisting change are very strong. (laughs) And so, what what we wanted to describe for people is it's not that the stepwise models are wrong, but think of the metaphor of being at the beach when you're standing and you're seeing a wave crash, which is a leadership, effectively, metaphorically, a leadership initiative to create change. Think of that as a wave, and the sand and the, and the soil that you're standing in on the beach as the stable dimensions of culture, and the interaction of the wash of the, of the waves and the sand that you feel on your feet, changing the contour of, of culture around your feet, mm-hmm. the sand, but then the backwash as it pretty <laughs> much changes it right back. So, yeah. and 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 so, if you think of culture change initiatives in the, in that wave metaphor, it'll continually remind you that yes, there's change, but a lot of things change back, and it's only <laughs> over a long time that the contours of the beach actually change, the contours of the culture actually change. So,
1: can I just interject I, one thing, Peter, really yeah. really quick? It reminds me of some conversations I've been having about some of the issues in our in our fair country, and and my point is, it has taken decades to create where we are, and it's going to take decades to to get maybe back to where we want it to be, or maybe not even back, but where we want it to be. And my point is, I'm sort of sensing the same is true in in guiding a culture that if a culture is largely from the past and manifest in the present, then the idea that, you know, between now and the end of the year, we're going to remake the culture of X, Y, Z company
2: is is a silly like it takes a time. Right. Like, is that right? Is that I mean, normally, yes. Right. But there are cataclysms and catastrophic waves. And you could argue the pandemic is one of those that forces change on us in a way that we weren't ready. I I mean, I find the whole sort of the debate about work going from in office to virtual as being a really interesting one because in one sense, you can say it really drew people away from each other because we couldn't go to the office and be together. On the other hand, you can say, well, what we effectively did is we moved the office into the home. And in our view, you could really look at that and say that actually made the, the organization more human, more personal. Mm-hmm. What we like to say in the, in the Humble Leadership series books, it had the positive effect, potentially, of collapsing professional distance. Because instead of me leaving my home and leaving my persona at home and arriving at work and taking on my work persona in my work right. role, I now am at home with my, well, I happen to have a virtual background today, but I could have my virtual or my not, my actual background. And it drew, in some respects, it drew people more closely together because, you know, that I've now explicitly connected home and work life in a way that was brand new for a lot of people. And I do think that leaders need to sort of start by recognizing there's there may be something intrinsically positive there. It wasn't that we were all ripped apart and had to try to relate to each other over, you know, video and audio. It was that maybe we we found ways of collapsing professional distance through all of this that was intrinsically a positive. Yeah. I think we will, I think companies are going to the idea of the hybrid model where you spend some days in the office and some days at home. I think is probably going to be a very positive adaptation for a lot of companies that it it has a net increase in satisfaction for people because they, they do have that sense that they can retain some of the positives about working from home at the same time that they can also capture that spontaneity and effectiveness that comes out of the conversation in the hallway. I think these things, I think there's a way that companies could really come out of this and say, Not that the pandemic was a blessing, but there was a silver lining there that we should not overlook. It it, it sparks for me
1: when I was at Harvard and at a group of people working for me. One of the things I would say say two things to them on a on a fairly regular basis. One was, anytime you want to just stay home, stay home. And they'd be like, "What? What do you? what, What? What will I? What do you want me to do?" I'm like, "Just stay home. Just just sit on your couch or front porch and think about." what we're doing here and no no expectation. And just, just trying to like make it as I love the idea of reducing distance. And and then the other thing I would say, which really freaked them out was, and I have no problem if you want to like go online shopping at 11 in the morning on Monday. And my point to them was, you you read emails at 8pm on Monday night. Yeah, this is all oneness. This is these are not separate capacities. We're all just we're all just being human, trying to perform our our roles so that we can make money, so we can live our life, you know? Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I hope that part of what comes out of this, again, I love your like reducing distance idea, is reducing distance between our professional self and our personal self. And right. comp- more and more companies embracing that the people that work for us are humans, pure and simple.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's what really our humble leadership books are about, is that we, we've, in those books, starting with Ed's, I think it was in Humble Inquiry, it wasn't, well, no, it was in Helping, because in the Helping book is when Ed first introduced the idea of humble inquiry, and then that became a book. But at any rate, the idea is that we believe in a in a, a relationship model at, at work, and it it's four layers. The bottom layer we call like layer minus one because it's a negative relationship. It's dominance and exploitation. Level two or level one is transactional, essentially a transactional relationship. You have a role, you know the rules of the road, you stay in your lane, you are effectively handing off work between the person who handed it to you and the person you're handing it to, right? It's it's just, it's a, it's a workflow. And then the level two is the personal relationship, or we we use the term personized because it's a whole person to whole person. It's not a custom relationship. We're trying to make the distinction between personalized banking, (laughs) right? Which is a it's a transactional relationship that they've just that that the banks have tried to make more personal to you. That's one thing. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But what's different with Level two relationships is that we actually have consciously made an effort to get to know each other person to person in a way that will optimize and maximize communication between us. And then the top, so that's level two. And then the top level is intimacy, which we're more familiar with in the home and in our our romantic relationships. But there is a place for intimacy at work. And we, every time we talk to people about this model, they, they'll tell us, you know, gee, we, we have lots of relationships where we finish each other's sentences, which is kind of a, a way of sorting out, is this a level three relationship or a level two relationship? But the point being, we're seeing more and more companies that we talk to about this saying, we actually think there's like a level 2.5 mm. somewhere, you know, we'll call it professional intimacy as a level of, of deep connection with each other that is far better than just a level one role to role transactional relationship so that's the that's the sort of the rubicon that we think we're crossing and we're you know we're not alone in talking about this this is this is the you know it's rehumanizing organizations as you set up we we really think this is happening and the interesting thing is to see the companies that are doing it and learning from them. Is there a poster child you guys would share in terms of level two,
1: level three, either manifestation or marching it, towards or?
2: I think it's I think it's touch points. We see examples. You know, the, the Frederick Laloux book on reinventing organizations, that has a bunch of really interesting examples in it. Yeah the the one that we often like to cite is is Google's experiment where they tried to figure out what made organization or what made engineering teams more successful than others right and they did all of this deep analytics you know cuz they Google knows how to analyze stuff and what they discovered was just this basic idea that the teams that had established psychological safety right. meaning the ability to really talk openly open, with, open right. Openly with each other. Yeah. Or the ones that seem to be more effective, more successful, more satisfied, you know, more people worked with a higher level of satisfaction when they could share that psychological safety with each other. So that's an interesting touch point there. And there's lots of other ones out there.
1: What's your view on the underlying motivation for this? Call it emerging, I'm not going to call it enlightenment, but view is it just you know because organizations have been studied now for a solid 50 years white collar oriented organizations, you know like or is it technology has done something like what what fundamentally do you think has been the underlying impetus for this growing awareness and interest in rehumanizing or humanizing the the work world
0: i have a a view of that we both do The thing that forces relationships in the first place is the complexity of the job that we need to get done. The reason we organize in the first place is because we can't any longer do the job alone. But over the last hundred years or more, we discovered that we could think of the organization as a machine that had a lot of linear programs in it, like assembly lines, and that one could really design the machine to be well-oiled and function very well, and we had huge industrial success with this model. However, technology, particularly the internet and the computer and information technology, created tasks that were no longer linearly interdependent like assembly lines or passing fire buckets in a chain, we suddenly discovered that to really get a job done, there is what we wanna call simultaneous interdependence. And where I think this is most clearly illustrated and forced upon us was through COVID, both in the, the actual delivery of, of patient care, Where all sorts of people had to suddenly work together because of the rate at which patients were coming in and the supply chain of having to get the shots to the right place, organizations had to learn to function differently to deal with the medical crisis. And I think in the meantime, the industry in the US that has most learned about the importance of humanizing relationships is healthcare and medicine. I think Mm -hmm. we get more readership from hospitals and doctors and those kind of groups than we do from Procter & Gamble and General Electric. Mm -hmm. I think there are still the old dinosaurs of industry operating on level one transactions, but healthcare, Silicon Valley, startups, Peter should start, should tell about the the reverse cycle of these levels of relationship, Peter.
2: Wait yeah, that's interesting. We're, yeah, see, that that's an example of a level three relationship that Ed and I can sort of telepathically <laughs> <laughs> communicate that. And, it's almost you know, like well, you're... I mean, is it, he is my father, so... It's, yeah, so I was going to say, it's almost like you're related. About a level three relationship there, but... No, I, th- I think I was thinking the same thing that one of the things that we realized when we described this model of level minus one to level three is that if you invert it, you almost have a classic sequence of stages that a startup goes through. That it starts with, you know, Hewlett and Packard or Jobs and Wozniak, you know, a pair of passionate, brilliant people who come up with an idea and they work on it twenty hours a day, and they are so deeply connected to each other. You could not describe that in any way, except as a professionally intimate level three kind of relationship. And then over time, they they scale the business by you know starting to divisionalize and adding a lot of employees, adding functions, but they maintain this this spirit of who they are. And a spirit of openness because they're innovators, they're, they're, you know, they're changing the world. So we would say that they're still functioning in a level two kind of a way. They're a startup, they're continually adapting, they may be pivoting a few times here or there, but they're operating at a level two kind of a level. And it's only when they get to a certain scale and to a certain level of or layers of organization. Of bureaucratization that they start adopting more sort of level one transactional relationships with each other, because all of a sudden there's you know thirty thousand people in this organization. Right. And the problem is that some the, and there may be certain functions where that level one transactional relationship is perfectly appropriate. And it's not it's it's more efficient. It may not be more effective. But effectiveness isn't the issue there. Efficiency is the issue. So level one works fine there. The issue is when you get to level minus one and you start bureaucratization has taken you all the way to exploitation. And unfortunately, that does happen. That's not, that is not only in you know Asia or only in the 1960s or 70s. That still happens. And so if nothing else in these books, we sort of want people to kind of say, okay, you know, where are are we? Are we still sticking to the values that we have about level two relationships at work? Or have we allowed ourselves to get so bureaucratic that we're starting to act transactionally or exploitatively of either younger people in our organization or, you know, a plant offshore?
1: I mean, I mean, to me, it comes back to culture as the lever, the critical lever, you know, that the way to avoid that journey into exploitation or just call it transaction, which is, you know, a step away from commoditization is, is to actively manage that cultural component in a, but I think you're, and I think there's a graveyard of companies that didn't get that, you know, it's just. That, yep. that scale became everything, and they and they effectively lost who they were. Right. So great, they became behemoth, but then they collapsed or, you know, whatever. I'm mindful of the time, guys, and, and this has been just a, a, a really, really interesting and helpful conversation for me. I want to just ask the very, very basic question of, so Ed wrote a book called Humble Inquiry and then Humble Consulting, and then you guys wrote Humble Leadership. Humble. Tell me about humble.
0: (laughs) Peter has the best explanation of humble.
2: Well, sure. I mean, I'll just just plow in and then see how Ed wants to build on it. I guess the thing is, it's that word so often gets associated with something that's sort of spiritual or religious. And it's not that those things aren't valuable. Those could be very valuable. But we want people to think about humble as something that's available to anybody. (laughs) Humble means that you sort of embrace the fact on any given day you walk into work and you embrace the fact that you don't have all the answers, that there are people around you that you work with who know stuff that might be valuable. And so to go in with what Ed described in making this distinction in the first place as here and now humility, again it's not that a a humble character trait might might actually be very useful but even the most arrogant person can embrace this idea of here and now humility i'm going to accept today that i'm facing a complicated situation and i don't know the answer and the best way for me to get to an answer with the people that i work with even if i'm the anointed leader the best way for me to get there is to embrace this idea of here and now humility. I don't have the answers. I bet as a group, we can figure out what to do. And I think
0: we believe that this is going to become more and more relevant, because if if anything has happened over the four Trump years, it's that we've even lost a sense of what is factual and what is real, and that unless you humbly inquire you may make all sorts of assumptions that are wrong right. so in a world in which there are fake facts and where the news is suspect humble inquiry is the only way to guarantee that you're going to reduce your ignorance and and learn stuff that will make it possible for you to make better decisions yeah. so i think it's become critical in diplomacy and organizations To use humble inquiry to find out just what's going on.
2: This is where we like to, just if I can interject quickly, that the idea that our friend Bob Johansson from the Institute for the Future talks about leaders of the future biasing toward clarity and away from certainty. Mm. So certainty says, I have a certain degree of a degree of certainty that this is the outcome that's, that's most likely, and this is what we're going to pursue as our strategy, as an example. So it, it, it does not want to accept disconfirming information. Right. Certainty does not like disconfirming information. Clarity, on the other hand, welcomes disconfirming information and says, now I have a better sense of clarity about what's actually going on. And then maybe through that, I can make better decisions. I have to accept some uncertainty. But through that, I've gained more clarity. And the idea of humble inquiry, reinforcing my quest for clarity, because I welcome more information and I don't get caught on a certain, you know, point of view that will not accept other facts. And the interesting
1: dynamic is that I could argue that the call it the super culture of leadership at the sort of macro societal level, has historically always been about certainty. That that the job of the leader was to declare the answer, not to ask the question, and certainly not to show not knowing the answer to the question. (laughs) Right. And and so, kind
0: of- Can I give you, throw in one very quick example from our book that is- to me the ultimate we knew a guy we know a guy who was at that time the captain of a uh, nuclear aircraft carrier and an incident happened on the deck where they almost lost an airplane because some seaman had not put the chocks in right or something big deal the seaman would of course be heavily blamed and and get appropriate discipline but this guy said I want to see that guy in my quarters now, send him up. Now, what the hell is the captain doing, you know, interfering in the normal bureaucratic process, getting the lowest person on the deck up to his cabin? And of course, the the young seaman probably was completely scared out of his mind. And when he arrived, the captain said, sit down, I'm not here to discipline you. I really need to find out exactly what went on that led to what you did and what happened. Mm -hmm. That's what the captain felt he needed to know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a brilliant example of humble inquiry because for all, I think this captain understood that what goes on on the deck is complicated and just know, yeah, this was wrong. We blame this guy, give him discipline and move forward might miss some crucial point that the captain was curious about yeah. as to why this accident would have happened in the first place when we train our people so well he wanted to find out i think that's a great example for me
1: yeah i think that i mean i, think I go back to your four levels i think you know to punish the the sailor outright would have been a transactional reaction that's and right. If what, what he sought to affect was some level of of professional intimacy and understanding. And you know, I, I love the work that you guys have done. I think, you know, the rehumanization of of the work, the work world. I mean, the work world and the rest of the world, they're only one world. And I think, you know, whatever all of us can do to bring more human understanding into our behaviors, our actions, and our views, the better. So thank thank you. Thank you for the gift of what you, you guys have created with with the books. And I want to end with a shill opportunity. So what the latest book, again, is what's...
2: Humble Humbly, Inquiry. Humble Inquiry. Yeah, second edition.
1: Second edition. Frankly, it sounds like there are five or six or seven books that we should all be reading. The Survival Guide, I think, sounds like an interesting another... What's the title on that one again, guys? It's
2: the... This is the the what we think is a really great book with a with a title that we don't love. But because because it's the third edition, it's the corporate culture survival guide, but it it's sort of unofficially um named by us as culture change leadership. The co- the corporate culture Sur- survival guide 3rd edition. It has a picture of a wave on the cover if you're if you're shopping. Yeah. <laughs> you can't miss you
1: know, it. And let me just I'll just really close by saying, you know, I've run businesses most of my life or helped others run their businesses. And I have come to believe that the most important lever you can pull in any organization, I don't care what industry you're in, is 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 this lever called culture. Although I'd like your, your idea of not using that word because it's a loaded murky word for sure. Exactly. So replace it with whatever word you want, but that area, is everything, not just in terms of extracting the greatest performance for your organization, but also I believe in terms of giving the people that work for you what they deserve, an environment that supports them, that nurtures them, that, that develops them, that you know, that they they can value as readily as they value any other part of their life. So thank you both very much for the work you've done and for being on the show. And I hope we stay connected. And I will be reading all your stuff for sure, for sure. Well, thank
2: you thank so, you so for much for having a, us.
1: Yeah, great discussion. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book technology is dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today. And I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.